We're going to be looking uh, today in God's Word, uh, launching a new series. And the series is in the New Testament book. Uh, I've decided to go for the next three months, the book of James. And uh, we'll be spending this time from now until the end of June, uh, all the way studying this New Testament five-chapter letter, written, I think, in a very uh, important manner that could give us, I hope and pray, much spiritual equipping and challenge in our own lives. As we're going to look at this book over the next few months, uh, I'm sure if you've ever read the book of James, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, But the book itself, as we'll be looking at even today by way of some introduction, uh, is going to be a book that's going to challenge our daily life in Christ, in our families, individually, at work, but also as the body of Christ together, how we live. Our theme this year is, is focusing on our spiritual community. And one of the best ways to do that is to get really practical in how we live out our understanding of following the Lord Jesus in our daily lives. How we live that out in community is hopefully how James is going to equip us and challenge us in so many ways. And so this morning we're going to uh, jump right in the first few verses of chapter 1, but also uh, look at some introductory thoughts uh, for the book itself as we begin this journey in the book of James. I've entitled this series, Faith in Action, as the book will hopefully prove that to be very true over the course of our journey together. And uh, let's look now at God's Word. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. I do encourage you to read the book of James of the next uh, week or so, only five chapters, and give it a once or two over and uh, become more familiar with the passages as we start going through a section each week. Listen as I read God's Word. And James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word so freely that we might partake of it any time we so choose. And we are not bound or limited or under persecution to be able to open and read a study to know, memorize, or even meditate your word. We thank you for that uh, freedom we still have in our own nation. That, Lord, we can uh, just walk down the street or drive and pick up uh, a, a copy of your word. Um, and we even have access on the internet to your word so freely. We thank you for all the blessings we have of your truth. May we take your truth now, and as we pursue understanding it and applying it to our lives daily, that we might do so uh, with all earnestness. Uh, Father, speak to us each and every week as we journey in this letter that you have given to your servant James to share and to build up your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, the focus today is the first few verses of James, and as the sermon title, the series is Faith in Action, but the title is Our Test of Faith. Uh, I started thinking about when in my life have I had tests of faith? Hopefully you could name some in your life. Oftentimes a test of faith is something that is understood more clearly in hindsight. 
as opposed to when you're actually going through it. And you understand it looking back at it and observing and understanding. Not always, but oftentimes. I look back and my first ministry position was in a small church, about 80 people, a church plant, three years old. God called me to Florida on the East Coast, just in a uh, little city called Ormond Beach, north of Daytona. I went there to this church and they were still meeting in a storefront, had not uh, purchased property or had anything like that. And so we began, uh, I began to minister there with two middle school and two high school students as the youth pastor in the church. And uh, we began to see families reached out to and connected with and God began to bless but in that first uh, week when I arrived they said oh and by the way I forgot to tell you next Monday or next Monday morning you're leaving with 11 middle school students in a 15 passenger van and you're driving to North Carolina for camp all week I went oh now there's a test of faith uh, so I took a group of middle school boys and girls for the first time ever never done that in my life and I said well this is my job let's get to it and we went all week uh, God blessed we came back Surely it was a test of faith to do it, but when I returned, I really began to want to connect in the community. And so what I did was I began asking around, you know, uh, does anyone have any involvement in the schools? Because I wanted to get connected in the schools, of course. And there was one main high school, and my background being in team sports, particularly football, I thought, well, maybe I'll go and see if I could just hang out at pra summer practice. And so a few weeks later, summer practice began for the, uh, the varsity team there at Seabreeze High School in Daytona Beach. And I walked over and just kind of stood outside the fence of the track, just watching practice one day. I didn't want to impose or get in the way just to observe. Of course, I was the only one doing so, so it was kind of obvious. I wonder what this guy's doing. And I just watched, and the next day went back and did the same thing. And for a few days, just kept hanging around and observing and watching and, um, and not speaking to anyone. In fact, before I started doing that, I spoke with the local uh, ministry director uh, that was involved with a local ministry, uh, outreach youth ministry, and he said, he had been there for already five or six years in the community, and he told me, he said, listen, if you have any desire to get connected with uh, the football team at Seabridge High School, forget it. I've already tried to, to knock that door down, and there's no way you can get into that school that way, or you can connect in that way. I said, okay, thanks. I just began to pray, Lord, give me an opening, make, make, me, make me an opportunity. And so about a week or so went by, and after practice, I had a name of a player of someone who knew someone who knew someone in our church, of this player that played for the team. And so I went in, uh, in towards the locker room, and an assistant coach stopped me in the hallway. And I said, oh, hi, my name. And he goes, oh, I know who you are. And I go, excuse me? And he goes, yeah, I've heard about you. And I said, oh, really? And somehow the head coach had found out because this weird guy's hanging around his team for two weeks who I was, knew everything about me and my background, how to play college football, all this so forth. And so then he took me to the head coach, and the head coach, never, never forget this, he said, listen, I'm glad you're here. Anytime you want to speak to my players, you've got an open microphone. In fact, today after practice, I want you to come and share anything you like with the players. Okay, I'll be there. And then I became the chaplain for the team for the next four or five years, and God used all kinds of opportunities. I had no opportunity myself to do anything except God himself did a work to give me that opportunity. But it was a test of faith because I knew no one in Volusia County, Florida. I literally had no idea how God was going to do anything. I just went literally like a nomad asking God to open a door somehow and he did when we step out and trust him in the midst of sometimes very uh, despairing circumstances we will see God do incredible things today our focus is looking at James challenge to this 
subject of being tested in our faith. Before we jump into the text that focuses on that point, I want to give some introductory thoughts to the book itself of James. Look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So first, who's the author of this book as we come to understand uh, the letter of James? Which James is writing this letter? Well, there are about five New Testament Jameses that we know of in Scripture. Uh, James, an apostle, son of Zebedee. James, brother of Jesus. James, the father of the apostle Judas, not Iscariot. James, the son of Alphaeus, another apostle. And James, they called the younger, whose mother, Mary, was the wife of Clopas. So which of these Jameses was the James that's writing this letter? Well, many different commentators uh, have different thoughts, but I think there's a majority of you that would look the most likely candidate for this letter would be James, the brother of Jesus. Why? Several reasons, but just a few to note. First of all, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, as we see in Scripture, was the sole and primary leader of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. And therefore had quite an understanding and perspective as he would, been, would have been writing to such an audience as this book addresses. He would be the most likely person to address Jewish Christians at this time of the establishing New Testament church. Also, James, brother of Jesus, had very authoritative teaching as you read through this letter. And many of his teachings are very close to Christ himself, as of course he would have been around Jesus and his teaching. The character of James, the nature and the character of James, the author here, is very similar to the James and the character we see in Scripture. Acts chapter 21, Galatians chapter 2, when it speaks of James, the brother of Jesus, and his nature and who he was and how he was known to be in the New Testament church. These are some very founding reasons why we would consider James, the brother of Jesus, to be the author of this particular letter. But who's the audience? Well, he says clearly, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes scattered. Now that's not a literal just the 12 tribes only. No one else is to read this letter, but it's given somewhat uh, in a broader sense to the Jewish Christians. The use of certain Jewish terms in the scripture or the, the book of James, we can see how this is certainly intended specifically for a Jewish Christian audience. Though I'm sure Gentiles read it as well. It was primarily written to the Jewish believers of the church being established at that time. In chapter 2 verse 2, if you read uh, this week, the book itself, you'll see the word meeting there in chapter 2, verse 2, and that comes translated from the word synagogue in the Greek. In chapter 5, verse 4, <clears throat> you also see the word, the Lord Almighty, translated from the word Sabbath, which has a strong, of course, Jewish understanding of the Sabbath and the usage there. Also, in the book itself of James, you have the usage of the word elders more than once but not the use of a very commonly used New Testament term, especially in a Gentile audience, of the term overseers. But instead, using the word elders exclusively rather than the term overseer, which gives a strong Jewish tone to the author addressing the audience. And so this is why we see strongly it's written to a Jewish audience, but also to a Christian audience. 
Verse 2, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Brothers being, of course, the spiritual connection that James has with his audience. These are Jewish believers who have understood the Messiah, have given and trusted their hearts to the Messiah. And so, a Jewish Christian audience. These were also probably believers that were likely being persecuted under the Roman oppression during that day. The age of the actual letter, well, many opinions there, but it's likely that James, believing the brother of Jesus, uh, was martyred somewhere in the early 60s A.D., maybe 62, 63 A.D., and so the epistle was likely written around 45 to 50 A.D. In fact, it may have even been the first or one of the first, definitely, letters written of the New Testament that we have uh, in the, the New Testament canon. There is a greater understanding of what this book is about when you look at its ethos. Kind of, what is the tone of the overall book? What's the ethos of the book? Well, James, as we've already said, is a very practical Christian living book. Some would say it's not a very theological book. I don't know if I would agree with that too much. Uh, certainly, he doesn't go into... Uh, mounds and mounds of deep doctrinal concepts and, 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 and splitting them and going deep in those concepts like Paul would do, let's say, in the book of Romans. But I do believe certain theological subjects and matters are clearly in the book of James. He just gives a very practical perspective on those theological uh, terms and, and uh, topics that we'll see. But it's very practical. Directives in living out the Christian faith. Our faith in action is the ethos of this entire letter. James focuses more, and this is important to understand, on the imperatives of gospel living as opposed to, or different from, the indicatives of gospel living. Any both. It's very important. The indicatives of the gospel and the imperatives of the gospel Scripture gives us both. Christ gives us both. We must always have both and an understanding of what they are. But James is leaning heavily on the imperatives in this particular letter. Nothing wrong with that. But yet we, must, we have to understand that James is doing that so that we might not get caught up too much in our motivations for just doing what the gospel calls us to do. You see, <clears throat> indicatives are very important, but so are imperatives. Indicatives tell us who we are in Christ. Indicatives gives us our identity as children of God. The indicatives of the gospel tell us exactly what God has done for us. This is what God has done, an indicative truth of the gospel. And that's so important. So that we know as we then move towards doing those things that God has called us to do and to follow Him, we understand who we are, whose we are, as we then move towards living out that identity as Christians. And that identity then is flowing into the imperatives of what we do daily, practically, with our faith. By one count, there are about 54 imperatives in the book of James. How many verses in the book of James? About 108. That means every other verse has an imperative on the average. Every other verse in this book 
That's a lot of imperatives for a small little letter written by James. James will certainly feel like a do, do, do book as I go through it the next three months. That's because it is a do, do, do type book. You have to understand that. But we must not just focus on the doing, but understand the, uh, the, the perspective we have of being God's children and who we are as we seek to live out our faith. In fact, this particular book of the New Testament has such a strong challenge towards doing the good works of our faith that a, a man you may have heard of named Martin Luther back in the early 16th century as he was wrestling with his own faith and came to a strong conviction, which of course Scripture gives us, justification by faith alone, not by works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We know that's very solidly clear in the doctrine of what the gospel tells us. Luther did not consider James to have the same canonicity as the other books of the Scriptures due to its emphasis on the role of good works in the life of a Christian. And of course, you know, Luther had an aversion to anything that even slightly smelled like justification by works. And so, he struggled greatly with this particular book, the book of James, in the canon as being Scripture. Even though he had a millennium of church history fathers behind him that had already affirmed that this book is canon, it's Scripture, he still struggled. Why? Because it's so strongly practical in living out the Christian faith that he certainly struggled. But even Luther can be mistaken. The doing aspect of James is rooted, and we must remember this as we walk through the next few months, it's rooted in a deep conviction of God's sovereign grace in the life of every believer. We take the book of James, and what's the greatest commentary on the book of James? It's the other 65 books of the Bible. That's the greatest commentary on James. So we take James in light of everything else that our Scripture tells us, and we understand James has a rightful place in Scripture. It has a, a place that God intends for us to gain from and to receive from as we fully understand that it is grace that motivates our hearts to doing the will of God and practically living out our faith. Here's the key. As you and I go through this study, as we study James, we must never forget that grace is a priority of our motivation and understanding that our doing must always be in light of our being as children of God, that we are fully accepted, we are fully loved by our Heavenly Father. We always read James in light of that understanding that all of Scripture tells us the true nature of the Gospel. But as we go through this book, we'll consider several subject matters. We'll look at things like how faith and works do work together. How they have a relationship with each other. We'll look at the subject of wisdom. Godly wisdom and how we are to gain wisdom and have wisdom in our life. We're going to look at trials. Even today, we're going to look at the testing of our faith. We're going to look at temptation. We're going to look at the use of the tongue. The subject of prayer in the practical daily life of a Christian as well. 
All of these things, and even more than these, will help each of us in our spiritual growth as individual believers, but also as Christians living in a community of faith with each other. So let's jump in to the first few verses. James, <clears throat> after introducing himself and his audience to whom he is addressing, says these words, Consider it up your joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The presence of this faith test. That's the first thing James reminds us. That for each one of us as Christians, we have to understand that in our daily life, as we move and have our being, there will be tests of our faith. The presence of a testing of our faith is a given. It's not a matter of questioning whether it will ever happen. James immediately lets us know that we as followers of Christ will have testings of our faith. It will happen. If, I'm sure it's already happened in your life, but if you do not recognize it yet, know that it will absolutely be a factor and a presence in our life. James, again, being the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem, as we see in Scripture, his Jewish Christian audience were likely already scattered around Jerusalem because of the persecution, being displaced and suffering under Roman oppression. And so they understood themselves whenever he says, there will be a testing of your faith, they're, they're, I'm sure, in their heart responding, well, of course, we're living it right now. But for those of us who are not in the same position as those Jewish believers in the first century A.D., we may not have the same perspective as they did, being displaced from their homes and being under a government oppression in that way. We ourselves must be reminded that our faith will experience testings and trials. So, if they would suffer is not even on the table as James addresses them in the first verse, verses of the chapter. But instead he speaks to there will be definitely trials and testings of our faith. But James' words really give us a helpful perspective. Trials and sufferings for us as Christians are going to be that which we really need to accept. And understand, it's, they are there for a perfectly good purpose in our life. They're there as God has designed them to be there. And to have an expectation in our life to be pain-free, trouble-free, suffering-free, and that should be the norm for the Christian is probably a mis-expectation. An expectation that is probably founded more in our culture and, and in being born and raised and blessed in a country that has so much blessing and so much given to us from our birth and not having any other perspective. We kind of assume that to be the norm and the normative for how then our life, even as a Christian in this world, for the years that God gives us, should look like. We have that normative perspective because we have no other perspective. And even if we take a two-week mission trip to see something that's really different than what we experience on a daily basis, 
It's still hard to keep that perspective when we come back and we live daily in what is normative for us. To be pain-free, trouble-free, suffering-free is an expectation that will never be met. No matter what type of environment you live in in this world, it will never be met. So it should not be a goal or desire we have in that sense. At the same time, James speaks alongside what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, Peter says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. James in verse 2 says, Consider it though a pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. In some ways, as he's speaking to a Jewish audience that probably has been scattered and is experiencing great suffering in their own families and their lives, it may actually seem a little bit insensitive of James to be addressing this people in that way. I mean, he knows they're suffering. He knows them by name. Many of are on his mind and heart when he's probably writing these very words. So why would he say such a thing? It almost seems out of place, possibly. Come on, James, be a little more sensitive than that, can't you? But we must be reminded of who is speaking the words. James himself. James witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember? He saw Stephen murdered, killed for his faith. He knows what that looks like and how I'm sure that impacted his own heart and his life and his own faith to have someone so uh, close to him commit or have such a tragedy happen and be there in the very presence of Stephen's death. He's seen and is seeing the great dispersion, the scattering of his kinship, the Jewish believers like himself. He's seeing that happen. He joins the other apostles in similar exhortations. So when he says, consider it pure joy, he's not coming from an insensitive place. He knows fully what that means when he says it, and he says it for very good reason. James echoes other New Testament writers like Paul in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Alongside Peter, when Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. James is not the only one that sees this perspective of trials and tribulations and suffering and yet is able to say and yet consider it joy. You might say, you know, Mike, I hear what you're saying and that's all good, but if I'm really honest, if I were really honest, I'm still not very joyful when trials come, when suffering comes. I just can't say with an honest heart, I'm really joyful about it. Well, that's for perfectly natural. I understand how that feeling would be there. The reality is that when trials and troubles do come in our life, when they do arise, the least likely perspective to have is one of joy in our natural flesh. It is least that will come up naturally. We will struggle. That's why James gives us an understanding regarding 
not just that the presence of a faith test is there, but he gives us a better perspective on the purpose that helps us. He gives us the purpose of our faith test in these verses. Look at verse 3. He says, Consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Verse 3, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. First, the key here is when James says, You must know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The key is for the believer to know. To really, truly know that when trials and testings come, there is a purpose in it. Every, to know that every single event, every single testing, no matter how small or how big it might be, is according to a master purpose and plan for us. If you don't know that, that's the first thing you must start with. If you don't believe that, we must seek the Lord to give us that conviction, that belief. Even give us the gift of faith to believe that. Because we can't move forward with what James says next unless we first settle this issue. We know that whatever happens and comes in our life is for a greater eternal purpose. And we don't waver from that. We will struggle with it because we have feet of clay. We will struggle we will absolutely struggle. And sometimes it will feel like we will struggle to it to the point where we might even want to say, I don't even believe God is there. Ever been there? And that's okay if you get to that point. God's big enough to handle our struggle. As His children, even when we struggle to that point, He's able to receive our struggle. But we must continue, even in our struggling, to bring our hearts before Him and to understand that we can know that whatever trials come into our life, God is in control. You know, when the lab results are complete and you get that phone call, maybe when your employer has called and said or told you at the end of the day it's time that you're going to have to be let go and have no longer employment at your business. Or maybe your child is diagnosed with some ailment that as you can see will, be, will have for the rest of their life. Or your spouse becomes so disconnected that basically you just cohabitate in the same, under the same roof. Whatever the trial and testing the struggle is, whatever it is, for they are innumerous. There are so many we cannot name. Even in this room, there probably are as many different trials and testings going on right now as there are the number of people. Probably more. There's probably more testing even going on than the number of people in here. Even when these things occur, we can absolutely know that such testing is not by chance. For there is no such thing as chance 
events in our life. They are directly from the providential hand of a loving father. The Heidelberg is a great catechism in that it asks this question and gives us the answer. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer? Here's what I understand. The providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and he so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. From God's hand to us Everything we experience is in that purpose. To know God is sovereign over events in our life is certainly that which we must grab hold of with our heart. But what does testing of our faith truly accomplish? To know it is one thing. To say, yes, I believe I need to know that God is that providential for me and He's on my side. But what does the testing of my faith, though, accomplish? Well, verse 3. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Develops perseverance. 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes, And in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. As Peter just says to us, through the refining process our very faith that has been given to us is proved genuine in that perseverance. Our very faith is proven genuine in the perseverance. The word in verse 3, develop. In the Greek, it conveys the idea to develop perseverance. It gives the idea of working something out completely. Working it out completely all the way through, finishing it to the very end, working it out completely. That's the idea when he says your faith, the testing of your faith develops. It works completely through perseverance. The key is that perseverance, and this is something that's probably very obvious, but sometimes stating the obvious is what we need. What is one thing perseverance must have to be effective? Time. God created that time. You see, you don't have perseverance when something lasts 10 seconds. You, you can't persevere in something that is done before, that's over before it even gets started. It happens so quickly. That, there's no opportunity to persevere in something like that. Perseverance requires, by its very nature, time. You can't rush perseverance. Try it. It just doesn't work. Hurry up and let's persevere. It just doesn't make sense because it will not 
be accomplished that way. Perseverance, it's not quick. It's not short. It's not hurried. It's just perseverance. You must, to persevere in something requires us to be patient, to be long-suffering, to wait, to trust, to walk, not run, to even crawl or even stand still. That's what perseverance requires. When I was a sophomore in high school and um, I had... In our day, in my day, sophomore meant it was a first year in high school because we had a junior high structure, so ninth grade was junior high. So in starting high school, that was a time when I was, again, involved in, in, uh, in athletics that I was moving up. leaving. I was the big fish in the little pond, starter playing on the junior high football team, to the big pond. I was the little fish with these guys that weighed over 200 pounds and you know, these huge seniors. They were just, you know, very foreign to me to be able to play in that type of, a, of an environment. And so... I was basically fifth string. That's five. I was not first, fifth string, okay, in the position that I wanted, that I, well, the only thing I could possibly play at that time with my size and my experience. So I started out in spring practice going into the sophomore beginning year of school, literally as a fifth string uh, defensive uh, safety. And so we started out in we eventually got to summer practice, and then what happened was two of the guys that were ahead of me were seniors, and they got fed up because they had, uh, uh, the coaches had allowed a transfer from another school who was also a sophomore to come in and basically give him almost the first position because he was quite a good athlete and was known as a great athlete, and so the seniors got fed up with kind of feeling out there was special treatment, and so they quit. So I went from fifth to third in a week because these two guys quit. And then the guy that was ahead of me got frustrated, and then he also moved to a different position. So all of a sudden, I'm now in second position behind another sophomore. I'm thinking, if he stays here, that means I'll never really play much still because I'm always going to be behind him the rest of my career because he's the same age as me. In fact, he was the only other sophomore on the entire varsity team, he and I. The week before we started our first fall game, the first season game, we had a scrimmage. He got hurt. Bad. All of a sudden, coach says, well, who we got left? <laughs> and there I was. I was the only one left in the position, so he said, I guess we'll give you a chance, glass. Gee, thanks, coach, for the confidence. So we get out there in the first game of the season. I'm starting as a sophomore. Unbelievable. We win the game. I was on cloud nine. Here I am. I, I can't believe. I mean, here I was three months ago. I wasn't even going to see the field with a uniform. And I'm starting. Had a decent game. Finished it up. Monday practice comes, and we have a drill. I go to tackle a guy, and something hurts greatly in my left hip bone. I fall like somebody took a shotgun and shot me. I just couldn't even stand the pain. Went to the doctor. Thought, well, possibly I had pulled a muscle. Went, laid out a week. Missed the second game. Our biggest rival was a third game. They said, can you try to play? I said, yes, I'll try to play. I went into the game. Sure enough, I heard it bad again. It, it, it re-injured itself. Still didn't know what it was. Finally, by the end of the season, I had missed the entire season. Missed the entire season playing. I had actually had a, a very freak injury that no one had really thought of until I went to a specialist and had actually had a quadricep muscle pull away a bone chip from my pelvic bone. 
that usually happens in starters sprinting out uh, great athletes, <coughs> not me, but they would come out of the starting blocks and pull away, and it was just a freak injury. But it happened to me when I was doing this drill. I couldn't understand why, but that entire season, I had to persevere. I had to persevere in ways I never thought because I had to trust that God was going to give me what I desired so much. You know, I couldn't hurry that injury. It took six months. All I had to do was just rest, do nothing with it. You could do nothing for it except let it rest. It will heal on its own. But it took six months to do that. You see, I could do nothing to hurry that process. I had to just wait and be patient. There are so many things in our lives that happens where God just allows them to happen and we have to trust and wait. When we allow perseverance to do its work, we will grow maturing spiritually as we persevere. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, this phrase, must finish its work, is the same idea as what the Apostle Paul describes when he speaks of a thorn in his own flesh. When he was writing in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. I'll boast about my weaknesses. For my power, Jesus tells me, is made perfect in weakness. You know, one comment over the, the several years to Charlotte and me that many have told us when they look and see that we have three daughters all about the same age. And they make a comment, oh my goodness, I have no idea how you got through that first year or two of having three babies almost the same age and everything you went through. Not knowing our story, they kind of make a comment. That's a, a comment we often hear with you know, three kids, almost like triplets. When we hear that comment, my wife and I always probably have the exact, have the same thought that still resounds in our mind and our heart. And it is this. Oh, that's nothing. That was nothing to go through that. Having three little babies all the same age and all that it took to get through that phase of being a parent. Because of what we had experienced for years prior to the day when God gave us three children. We had such a resilience that God had built into us through the experience of the perseverance that he built into us that having three babies wasn't just something we were able to do, but we literally, with sleepless nights and everything it took to do what we went through, we literally did it with such deep joy. Only because... God built in that perseverance into our life. He does that for us. Spiritual perseverance points us to one thing, and that is this. The most important thing we get of this text is this. Spiritually persevering points us to the gospel of grace itself again. Two ways. How does it do it? In two ways. First, when we persevere... We depend on Jesus more. You can't persevere and not depend on Jesus. You can try it, but you won't last that long. If you're really strong, you'll last a while. 
but true perseverance that God calls us to and gives us the ability to persevere requires and necessitates our dependence on Jesus even more. You just can't persevere with God unless you depend constantly on Him. Trying to persevere independently of God will likely leave us bitter, resentful, angry, and eventually possibly even hopeless if we persevere apart from depending and leaning on Jesus. We must persevere with Him, upon Him, as we persevere. And that leads us to the second thought of why the gospel is in our persevering. Jesus, and this is the second and final thought, Jesus has been tested and he's perfectly passed the test so we don't have to. Yes, we're going to have testings. But remember, Jesus has already been tested. He's passed perfectly any testing ever given to him. And he's done so so that we aren't required to pass any test to have a relationship with God. Hebrews 12 reminds us these words. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus who already has been tested and passed the test so that we don't have to. And he lives within us. And how the presence of Christ, when those testings come, must be that place that we go to, that one whom we look to and rely on. Let's pray together.